right. So um, as we've been digging into Philippians, we've seen that like this is one of the most happiest books of the Bible. Um, Paul, the author of this letter, he's bursting for joy as he writes these encouraging words to the church of Christians in Philippi. Um, down in Anchor Kids, we've been saying Paul is stoked. It's quite incredible to see how happy he is despite the circumstances he's in. And so last week, we looked at that classic Bible verse, which is for me to live, um, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And Tim put the question out, what would it take for you to do that? What needs to drop off your list for Christ to take the central position in your heart? And so in the passage that we're looking at today, Paul shows us further how we can live this out. And so today's passage, it's about humility. But humility, it can be one of those things, it's hard to know if you have it. In fact, many say that if you think you have humility, you don't. And and the opposite isn't true either. Like, if you don't think you have humility, just because you don't think you have humility doesn't mean you have it either. So how can you know, like, both the arrogant and the humble can't truly know if they've got humility. And so we're going to do something a bit different, something we're not used to. I'm going to stop and get you to turn to the person next to you. And I want you to ask this question to them. I want you to ask, how can you know if you have humility? And so just take a moment. I'll bring you back after. Here's the, questions. Here's the question again. How can you know if you have humility? Go for it. So I'll bring, you, I'll bring you back from that. And so I'm guessing, I'm guessing that there was a certain amount of uncomfortableness with even just knowing where to start. Like, you can't really start the conversation being like, oh, well, you know, in my experience, because it goes against the whole idea of what it means to be humble. Did anyone find this? Did anyone find it a bit uncomfortable to talk about yeah, um, it's a bit of a par- paradox, really. Um, but I think what we can do is we can point it out in how we experience it in other people. Like it's a virtue that's attractive. It's something that we appreciate and we love. But how do we actually get it? Because it's the very thing Paul is calling the Philippians and us to live out. And it's there in verse 3. So have a look. Chapter 2, verse 3. I'll read it out for you says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. I was doing a bit of reading this week on the origin of the word humility. And so the people that Paul was writing to, they were Greek, and Paul wrote this letter in Greek. But the funny thing is, is that these guys didn't really have a word for humility. The way it's translated just means low, like, to, like low down. But the way Paul uses it is kind of this act of lowering yourself. And so to the Greeks, this concept, it was entirely foreign to them. They had this honour, shame-based society that associated with lowering yourself as actually deserving of shame. And what's also interesting is that the way Paul uses this word, 
It's not really found in any other ancient documents before the first century writings of the Christians. And so there's some historians that actually credit Paul with inventing the use of this word. And so this is what we're going to do today. Paul calls us to this seemingly impossible virtue of humility. And so we're going to look at what it means to live it out. And Paul, he uses this example of Jesus. And so we're going to look at Jesus' example and we're going to ask two main questions. So if you boys taking notes there, these are your two questions. We're going to ask how and why. How did Jesus show humility and why does he do it? So we'll dig into the how and we're going to kind of look at verses 6, 7 and 8 and break it down verse by verse. And so I'll read verse 5 and 6 for you. So verse 5, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. And so when Paul says that Jesus was in the very nature of God, it means that he was indeed a divine being, that he was one of the three persons of God. There was God the Father, God the Spirit, and there was him, God the Son, Jesus. And that they eternally existed in a perfect relationship. And they had all the same privileges as each other. They were co-equal, co-eternal, and co-creators. And so it's here we get our first glimpse into humility. Paul is saying that God the Son, Jesus did not consider his power to be used to his own advantage. That Jesus did not entitle himself to what he had. And so humility isn't just merely being in a lowly state because you couldn't ascribe that virtue of humility to an almighty God. But instead, it's the act of actually lowering yourself. And so this is, um, this is the image of humil- humility we see. It's that God the Son, who came as a man, was fully divine and had all the privileges of an almighty God. But he chose to limit himself by taking on the limitations of humanity. And this is what makes humility such an attractive virtue. It's the ability to put aside what is yours for the good of another. And we see this best in the person of Jesus. Like no one has ever been able to put aside so much for the good of so many. So that's the first one. The second way is verse 7. I'll read it for us. It says, Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. This is a depiction of him choosing to lay aside his rights as God the Son to come to earth in the form of a man, Jesus. He chooses to present himself to humanity, not as the all-powerful God that he is, but instead like us, a human. And he does it to the point that if he walked past you on the street, there would be nothing about his presentation that would distinguish him from someone else. This is the degree that God gave up, Jesus gave up his God-likeness. See, God the Son could have rocked up in a way that you couldn't have missed him. 
He could have come in all his glory and splendor and would have been unmissable. But he humbled himself to come as a man. And he came as a man because of his role to be a servant for humanity. For him to serve in the form of a man, it was necessary for our salvation. And that brings us to the third way, and it's verse 8, so follow along with me there. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so we, we see the ultimate lowliness that God the Son brings himself to. He humbles himself to die on the cross, a death of crucifixion, a death that was so loathsome that it was only reserved for the worst kind of criminals. Jesus was stripped naked and displayed on the cross in public humiliation. It was such a dishonoring death that Roman law, it forbade any Roman citizen to ever die in this way. This isn't just humbling oneself, but it's self-humiliation. You have God the Son, who was an infinite being, actually giving up his eternal rights to die a human death. At any moment, he could have used his power to stop what was happening. You actually get a picture of Jesus' determination during the account of his death on the cross, and it's in, there in Luke chapter 23. It should come up on the screen. Um, the, the soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. But Jesus chose not to exercise the power that was his, and instead he endured death for the good of humanity. And so you could take this humility and you could be like, yeah, I want to replicate that. But I don't think you'll ever be able to lower yourself as much as God the Son Jesus has done in this moment. Instead, I actually think the appropriate response is to allow yourself to be in awe. It's to marvel at the character of Jesus. It's to remind yourself that this is the very person that you put your trust in. Wrestle with what it took for Jesus to come to earth as a man and die on a cross. It's quite incredible. And so that's the how. So I'm just going to switch gears a bit and we're going to look at the why. Like why does Jesus humble himself? Like just to look at his humility can be humbling in itself. But when we start to look at the reasons why, it, starts, it brings out some massive implications for our existence. And so I'm going to get, dig into two reasons. And I'll point out the, his first motivation here. It's his deep love for humanity. And so look again there at verse 8. Focus on um, that last bit where it says, by becoming obedient to death. See, only an eternal God could accept death as obedience. Like for you and I, death isn't a choice. It's an inevitability. One day we will die and we don't have a choice in the matter. But for Jesus, it was actually a choice he decided to make. It was out of love for humanity that Jesus was obedient to God the Father's plan. That humanity might be saved from death and come to find hope in what Jesus had done for him. 
Romans 5.8 says that this act, it was a demonstration of love. And so that, that's, uh, that'll come up on the screen. Romans 5.8, this is it. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. This is love. Not only did he humble himself to come as a man and die a shameful death for our sin, but he did it so that we could enjoy the love of the Father, that we could have eternal life with him. But love isn't Jesus' only motivation. You might be a bit surprised by that. You might have missed it when you first read through it. But there, there is another motivation here. It's there in verse 11. I'll read it for you. It says, And every tongue acknowledge that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. His other motivation is God's glory. Is that, is that surprising? Like it almost seems like a typical Christian sentence that we'll just throw on the end of a prayer or something. Like, can be quite ambiguous, and we use it that way sometimes. Um, and this might feel as if I'm going off on a tangent, but I want to suggest that to glorify God the Father is actually Jesus' primary motive. It's actually the driving motive of Paul's ministry as well. And I want to show you how that's true in the rest of Philippians. So just have a look at the page to your left, and you'll go chapter 1, verse 11. And so from verse 9, I'll wait till you get there, Paul, he prays for the church, and he prays all these things, and he gets to the end of verse 11, and he says, to the glory and praise of God. So everything he's just prayed for is ultimately for the glory and praise of God. Flick over a page to your right. Hopefully it's a one page in your Bible. Chapter 4, verse 20. And so Paul's just finishing up his letter. He's written all this stuff. And then in verse 20, he says, To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. He's summarizing everything he's just said, saying it's for God's glory. And then you come back to the passage we're in. And he uses this depiction of Jesus and says, He did it to glorify God the Father. Like Paul is all about the glory of God. But this, it's not just something Paul cares about. It's actually for us as well. And so I want you to come over two pages to your right. It's probably the last flicking I'll make you do. And Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. It's really important, so I want you to go there. For in him... All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. The whole created universe is created by him, for him. Like this is our big existential claim of the Bible is that everything exists for God's glory. Every single thing. It's the great why of our Christian lives. 
It's why God has redeemed us. He t- Paul talks about this in Ephesians 1.12. I won't take you there. It says, In order that we who were the first to put our hope might be for the praise of his glory. All of us who put our hope in Jesus have done it to exist for the praise and glory of God. And this idea, it's actually in our passage as well. So I want to bring you back to chapter 2 of Philippians, verse 10 and 11, and I'll read it for you. That at the name of, name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. God is glorified when we bow the knee to his rule in our lives, when we humble ourselves before him. But this isn't just us. It's actually talking about everyone. There will come a time for all humanity when no one can deny the kingship of Jesus. But for those that don't accept him as king in this life, we'll be accepting it in judgment in the next not by mercy as the way we've been able to receive it, but in a just judgment from the re- for the rebellion against a good God who created them. And even though it grieves God that people reject him and his offer of salvation in this life, God will show that he's worthy of glory by upholding justice to those that are accountable to judgment. And so through God's mercy... And even in his justice, God will still be worthy of glory. And so I just want to stop there because that, that whole concept is really big. And, it, and I remember the first time I heard it, I'm like, wait, what? Like it's, like, it's not about me? Like, what about everything I've achieved? Or like, what about the legacy I'm going to leave behind? Like for someone that grew up in this culture of self-expressionism, like this... This idea just hit me like a brick wall. I'm like, surely not. Like, anyway, and you look, at, you look at what Paul was saying in last week's passage. Just the page to the right, it was 120. I'll read it for you. He says, I eagerly expect and hope. Sorry, I'll start again. I'll eagerly expect and hope I will no way, in no way be ashamed, but I will have sufficient courage so that now as always... Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. The key word there is exalted. It means lifted up. Paul's goal was that whether through his life or his death, Jesus would be lifted up, honoured, magnified by what he'd done. Paul's hope was that when people remembered him and his legacy, they will be reminded of the greatness of God. But this isn't a motive just for Paul. It's not just his way of expressing his faith, but it's actually what we're all called into as well. There's this great Bible teacher in America, his name's John Piper, and he gives this great analogy on how to understand that we glorify God. And he says, there's two ways you can glorify God, a right way and a wrong way. And he uses the word magnify as an equivalent word to glorify. And he says, it's about how you magnify God, whether it's a telescope or a microscope. 
See, a microscope, it makes small things like really big. But a telescope, what it does is it takes massive things and makes them visible to the naked eye. And so how are we to magnify God? Is it with a telescope or is it with a microscope? Well, it's not a microscope because God definitely isn't small. Like, we don't have to do things in our life to make God bigger than what he is. Our call to glorify God, to magnify him, is to put a telescope to the eyes of the world that people can see an incredible almighty God for who he is. That is the great why of Jesus' humility. That's the great why of Paul's ministry. And it's actually the great why of our Christian lives. That the way you go about life, how you do your job, how you participate in relationships, how you parent, how you behave, the way you deal with tragedy, everyone should be able to look to your life and see one thing clearly, that you're living for something else. You're living for Jesus. That's what it means to glorify him. And so... Some of you might be thinking, man, you started with humility. Like, how did you get here? (laughs) Well, think about this with me. If everything exists for God's glory, what room does it leave for me to live for myself? So this is what I'm getting at. Living for ourselves and our own glory is the very opposite of humility. God is most glorified when our lives point to his greatness. This is what it means to bow the knee and acknowledge him as Lord of our lives. We bring him glory when we depend on him against all reason. We glorify him when we credit him for what we have with thankfulness. We glorify him when we celebrate our salvation and what Jesus has achieved. We glorify him when we delight in the creation. We glorify him when we serve each other, even when no one is looking. God is glorified when our delights are in him. And in this way, humility is living for the glory of God. But what if we forgot about that? What would our lives look like if we forgot that we existed for the glory of God? Well, it'd be the opposite of humility, wouldn't it? We would be living lives for everything that makes us look better. We would be getting the telescope and turning it on ourselves. And so I'm just going to explore a few different areas of life quickly. Think about your job. Like, what gives you satisfaction in your job? Is it being recognised for what you do? Is it being highly thought of as someone that's competent? How do you respond to criticism? How do you react when you see others get recognised, but you don't? Do you feel that your emotions ride or die by the opinions of those around you? What about what you spend your money on? How does the pursuit of your own glory or image or reputation affects what kind of purchases you make and how much you spend on them. Well, think about how how you project yourself to the world around you. Think about something like Instagram, right? What's the very purpose of posting something? Like, 
yeah, you can probably use it to celebrate the goodness of God. But I feel like every time I look at it, I just see people like putting the telescope on themselves, using it to glorify themselves. Like, is that your experience of something like that? This is bringing up thoughts and feelings for you. Maybe identify how much it is that you're striving for your own glory. Like, it feels great to be noticed, and it's important to be encouraged. And don't get me wrong, that's an important part of our church life is to encourage one another. But do you have an unhealthy dependence on seeing yourself get glory? As I've been thinking these things through, I've been running all my thoughts and my motives through something I call the glory test, right? And this is what I've been doing. I've been asking myself, why? Like, why am I doing what I'm doing? And so I'll get upset and I'll be like, why am I upset? Is it because I didn't get the recognition that I was hoping for? Or why am I spending so much time here making myself look a certain way? Is it because I'm hoping people see me in a certain light, like the way I've planned? Or why am I working so hard at this skill? Like, is it so that someday someone might recognize me and be impressed with me? Like, for me, the the glory test has been crushing. Like it exposes what's going on in my heart. Even when I think I'm doing something for my good, I still see that there's like a small part of me that just wants to get glory from it. And so if you keep running your thoughts through the glory test, you might find, like me, that you're addicted to your own glory. And so to humble yourself and to live for the glory of God, like this this feels a bit unnatural. And so I'll take this to the context of our church. Like, what would it look like to glorify God in Christian community? Because this is actually what Paul is on about. Like, this is the full circle of where we've come. And so if you pick it up there, I'm going to read it again. Verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. How do we actually serve each other in humility? I think it's by having the same mindset as Christ, who humbled himself for the glory of God. True humility becomes possible when we do things for God's glory and not our own glory. And this would mean making decisions that please God even when they don't please us. Like, what might that look for for you? How will this change your priorities and your concerns when you gather together? What would it mean for you to go from being someone served to serving someone else? But maybe for you, this isn't a matter of serving. Like maybe for you, you're realizing that this is the first time, maybe you're realizing for the first time that you've never humbled yourself before an almighty God. Maybe you're seeing that you've always lived for your own glory. Maybe your idea of God has just been some kind of mystical helper that just helps you along your own path of glory. Is it time for you to humbly bow the knee to Jesus? 
Humble yourself to him and he will be delighted, not as a dominant ruler, but as a loving father who is calling you to himself and he wants you to enjoy life in the fullest way. This is humility, to lower yourself before an almighty God. It's to put aside the selfish ambition of your own glory and live for the glory of another. But don't let this call to glorify God burden you. Let it humble you. Because it's not our personal greatness that results in more glory for God. It's actually a surrendering to him. It's a trusting in him. It's your delight in him that will magnify God, not only in your own heart, but actually to the world around you. And so that's all I got for you. Um, I'm just going to finish by praying. Our Heavenly Father, um, thank you that you are worthy of glory. We're not, Lord. Um, we ask that you humble us and help us to learn to live what it might, live a life that glorifies you. Please put it on our hearts to know what it means to serve you. Please help us to direct the telescope away from our own life and to put it on you, Lord. You are worthy of glory. Um, we love you, Lord. We submit to you and we trust in you. Amen.